This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Understanding the physical behavior of the building as a system and how it impacts the energy efficiency, durability, comfort, and indoor air quality is pivotal in the creation of high-performance building. What does this actually mean? It means we're talking Building Science Fight Club. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're talking with Christy Williamson, building scientist extraordinaire. Christine Williamson has spent her career building science forensics, discovering why buildings fail and working with owners, architects, and builders to remedy the problem. Her new construction consulting role helps architects use building science not only to mitigate risk of failure, but also to help them make their projects as energy efficient as they are beautiful. She's the founder of the Instagram account, Building Science Fight Club, an educational project that teaches architects about building science and construction. She graduated from Princeton University and studied at Boston Architectural College before completing her Master's of Architecture at New School of Architecture and Design. She is a member and past chair of ASHRAE Technical Committee 1.12, Moisture Management in Buildings. Hi, Christy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so delighted to, to be doing it. It's fun to chat with you too. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I need to say this right up front on air. I want to start by saying that I found you through your Instagram account and I followed it for quite a while before, I mean, an embarrassing long time, really, before <laughs> I realized that you and I are in the same city. Same city, city. Both, I know. We're both in Dallas. I know. But for this stupid awful not stupid i mean also stupid but awful time we mm. could be doing this in person i know I was, cocktails yes when That'd i first good. contacted you about this because i was thinking for a long time oh i need to do this i need to do this and then when i learned you're in dallas i was like i really need to do this so i finally did it and the first time we chatted it was like an hour it was like an hour. Know, easily, like, easily what's what's up i mean was, <laughs> that's all it was and i honestly was thinking Oh, well, you know, Andrew comes up to Dallas when we record these, you know, pre-COVID times. And I said, well, I'll just sit on my couch and have like in-person yeah. chat. And it's going to be amazing. We but should do that anyway. I mean. We should do that anyway, because it would still be a lot of fun. But here we are. We're all on our Zoom call, looking at each other, having a chat. And I'm really excited that you're joining us today. Well, I'm excited to join you guys too. I also discovered you through Instagram. Maybe I'd heard people mention you in the Dallas architecture scene, but it didn't, nothing really registered until I was able to make the connection name to face to sketches oh. on Instagram, which is so strange. It's such a weird new part of our profession, a new way of connecting with other professionals. It's sort of yeah. a delight, actually. There's so many people that I regularly interact with in a professional capacity that I otherwise wouldn't know. Absolutely. And you know, I have some questions that I want to talk to you that are specific to your Instagram account, but I want to start off. I have this question. I was trying to figure out like, what do I call you? What does it say on your business card? And so I want to start off with a brief conversation about building science. How do you define what it is to other people? Like you're at a party. It's say, really hard. So I'll admit to this. When I'm in a non- professional setting. Maybe I shouldn't admit to this. There's some legal implications, <laughs> but whatever. I guess I'll just do it anyway. So if I'm completely in a non-professional setting, like I'm at a wedding and somebody asks, what do you do? I usually say, 
actually, I usually don't say I'm an architect. I say architecture because I'm not licensed. I don't have my license, even though my background is in architecture. My degree is in architecture and I'm pursuing my license. I don't have it yet. And so I'm really, I'm sensitive to that. So I don't say it. If sure. It's also not, you're not supposed to do it, but lots of people do. So I just say architecture. And then they ask the follow-up question is like, oh, that's great. So they always assume that you design houses or they want to know, do you do commercial or residential? And right. I have to very quickly assess if they actually want to have a conversation about something or if they're just... They're being polite. Yeah, yeah. or just like, okay, great, you're employed. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> now, moving Check. on. How do you know the bride or groom? <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Also in a non-professional setting, especially my parents who are not connected with this, they're like, you're not an architect? Like, well, what did you go to school for? I don't understand. Like, yeah. So yeah. non-professional setting, I don't answer. I really just don't answer the question. I just say architecture in general. You avoid it. I avoid it. Yeah. But let's actually put a label to it today. So when I get into it, when somebody is actually interested in what you do, I also try to answer it in a way that would satisfy me. If I were asking the question, a lot of times people will say what they do and I'm like, okay, but what does that mean? <laughs> I used to live in New York City and I would get a lot of private equity. Okay, I know what private is and I know what equity is, but what right. does that mean? So you get into your office, you turn on your computer, you sit down and then what? Yeah, what happens? Yeah, uh, what happens? So when I answer the question, I tell people that I help people make decisions, technical decisions related to their building in a way that helps them manage risk better. I deal with any kind of failure that's not structural, non-structural failures, which are almost always water related. Yes. That's new construction stuff and existing stuff. I Sometimes I'll say forensic architecture because people like the word forensic. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. You like it. I mean, I see it. I like it. Architect. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. So I'll give an example. I give this one a lot. Like suppose you just spent $300 million on a museum and you can't control the humidity inside. You hire somebody like me to figure out what happened and what the best way of addressing the issue now is. It's not actually that hard to find out what happened or how something went wrong. That's just step one. Step two is, okay, well, we didn't do that. So now what? And yeah. what do we do given that this is a building, buildings that generate income a lot of times for people. So can you implement a repair that doesn't involve shutting down the entire building? Can you still right. use the building while you fix it? So that's how I describe the forensic side. And then the new construction side, I put it in the context of risk management. And I'll give someone an example of a commercial client or a production builder or you know, a developer. Suppose you're installing 10,000 windows every year you know what it costs you to go back and fix stuff that's gone wrong from leaking windows. You know what that number is roughly. You have to replace the window. You got to replace any finishes that have been damaged as a result. You got to relocate a tenant. Whatever that is, you mm. know what that number is. So right. there's a lot of different kinds of windows you can buy. There's a lot of different ways of installing them. So is there something that we can do from a technical perspective? And I don't make the financial decision for people, but I help them decide, okay, so how do we want to go about installing this? Or is there a way to reduce the risk of failure from 1% to half a percent or from half a percent to a quarter of a percent? And the client decides where they want to be on that scale. Sure. There's a certain point of diminishing returns where you can always reduce your risk by spending more money. But at a certain point, it's like, this is not a laboratory. This is just this is a warehouse. And that point of diminishing returns is in a different place, depending on what kind of building you're building. That's when it comes down to financial decision. Because I was just thinking you were saying that 10,000 windows, 2% of that is 200 windows. That's a lot of windows to replace. Yeah. 
sure yeah, at some point I mean, it is financially It's driven. always a financial decision though. Yeah. I told somebody this once, my husband and I were at a party. It was a friend of my husband's. We were dating at the time. And um, a man asked what I did and I described it in these terms and he got really angry. Now, I think this guy would just really kind of wanted to, you know, some people are just combative, but he really didn't like that idea. He said, well, my tolerance for risk is zero. Like, it's not acceptable that any of them fail. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but the windows on your house right now that you own definitely leak, some of them. Now, yeah. do they leak bad enough to cause a problem? If you don't know about it, probably not. But we're all making these decisions about risk. It's how intelligent are we being when we're making them? How are we accounting for this risk? Or are we really actively accounting for the risk? And is there anything to be gained by looking into this more deeply rather than just sort of accepting? I, I like to think of the image of an iceberg where the part of the iceberg that's above the water is the aesthetic part of the design. And that's what an right. owner perceives. And they, they want to enjoy and experience that. But the part that's below the surface of the water is the part that we as professionals are also responsible for. We're responsible right. for both, the part that they see and the part that they don't see. But that part below the surface, a lot of times we don't get credit for being good about that stuff. Unfortunately, we get burned more often than we get praised for doing it well. And that's where that comes into play. I actually have it on my notes here. Obviously, when we have guests and we do a little research and so. I'm aware of the iceberg analogy. And I was like, you know, that's a really good way of looking at it. There's a comparison. I remember that I posted a picture to my Instagram. It was actually in my own house. It was redoing the bar. I put it out there and I was like, ah, you know, the difference between real life and school is I got to spend 10 minutes designing this bar. And somebody's like, oh, that's crazy. I was like, well, it took me 25 years to be able to design this in 10 minutes. So there's a lot more to it. It's not just this one little snippet. And that works really well with the iceberg analogy because there's the part that you see that is easy and it's easy to understand and people can like touch it. And not only is it aesthetic, a lot of times it's esoteric. It's veneer right. in the simplest way that you define that word. But there's all the behind the scenes, in the walls, under the floor, above the ceiling, all that stuff that really is what makes the difference between a product that you'd be really happy with and have good air quality and it's durable and it's long lasting and it's not going to fall apart in a couple of years versus something else that they don't know. And yeah. it's hard for people to put a value to that, quite honestly. Yeah, it really is. I was going to say that that is where the value is. The veneers and stuff always change, but the real quality of that product is really in the stuff that you don't see. I mean, for the most part. And that's also where there's a huge difference in Maybe this isn't really fair because you certainly don't have to spend a lot of money to, to get a high quality, durable, comfortable, energy efficient building and certainly not at a home. You really don't. However, you do end up having to spend more time and attention picking a designer who's competent in those areas and who can help make some of those decisions for you. There's a huge difference in the type of designer that is just helping you select finishes I'll get a surprising number of emails from owners who have bought a floor plan online mm. and they just want someone else to take it across the finish line. Well, don't really do that. Anyway, there's yeah. a huge difference between essentially just doing a layout of something and picking the finishes on an elevation and designing something that really serves the needs of the particular family that's going to live in that house. Yeah. A lot of times you get what you pay for. Well, and I would say, you know, your comment about money is it really, it takes more attention. It doesn't necessarily take more money Correct. to make sure that things are done. It takes more attention and usually that's exactly. more time 
but it takes more attention. Yeah, it takes more attention. And a lot of that is, so some of this is a problem. I, I'm really fascinated by this. I don't know all well, big picture how our industry really works. I wish I understood this better from sort of an economics perspective. But I think that the term for this in economics is asymmetrical information where the professionals know a great deal about a particular topic, but their customers know very little about that topic. So the classic example in economics is in buying a car, where like the manufacturer of motor vehicles knows a great deal about how the engine works, aerodynamics, and all this kind of stuff, and the consumer doesn't really know that stuff. And even actually the dealer might not know the ins and outs of that, and what ends up filling the gap for people so that they can make better decisions, like so addressing that asymmetrical relationship is branding. So brands come in or you get standards like Kelly Blue Book that come in and give you a way of comparing very different things. It's some sort of standardized way of comparing things that you don't know a whole lot about. And I think it's very hard to do that with houses because unlike cars, every building is a prototype. It's a one-off. For the most part, I mean, there are exceptions. There's production homes that are much more, that's exactly something that addresses exactly that, asymmetrical information. So when you're buying a David Weekly home, it means something than when you're buying a Lennar home or whatever it is. Right. I don't know what the sort of solution is in our business. I'm very sympathetic to homeowners and our clients really in like, how do they find, like, I'm good at my job, you're good at your jobs. But a lot of people, they don't want to spend that type of attention. And how does a client know the difference between someone who's maybe got some slick marketing materials, but doesn't actually know a whole lot about architecture right? and someone who does, that's very hard. And I genuinely don't know the answer. You know, I always kind of wonder about that because it's the idea that let's say that you are going to redo your kitchen. And so you go find a kitchen designer. You can design a beautiful kitchen and you build a great relationship with them. And you think, oh, you know what? Can we just like kind of blow it out our scope a little bit? We're going to renovate this and we put some windows in. You know what? They may not be equipped to understand building envelope and penetrations and that kind of stuff, but you've put them in a position just because of their aesthetics align with your aesthetics. And so you think you do what I want and I like the way you do it. So you're qualified to do what I want because I want that but doesn't mean that they can do everything to the same level of standard or care that you're asking them for. And so I always think that's where branding comes in though, right? Yeah. Because well, you start and looking- professional responsibility. So that's where I think it's at least partially the responsibility of the professional to say, okay, I'm going to work with you on your kitchen design and I'm really good at this part, but I need to bring in somebody to do this sure. other part because I'm not as good at that. And that is really hard for people to admit because we're already so almost like apologetic for our design theme because the client already thinks it's too much. And so to then say, well, we need to hire someone else to provide additional expertise. It's like, well, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, yeah. we're so shy about that. And it's, I think, unfortunate. Yeah. Oh, we're overly optimistic with our ability to learn figure how to it do out. it. Because <laughs> yeah. we always think that as well, right? Yeah, I can figure it out. I, I know how to do how this stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will tell you that, you know, I keep thinking that we need to do like a long episode on fees and how you establish them and what you pay and how do you put it together. But one of the strategies that I've seen that works really well, and I think it could benefit owners and it speaks to this, but it's a willingness of the service provider, which in this case we'll say is the architect, is to say, you want X. And so I'm, here's my fee for X. And as they hire you to do that, there's other things as they get to know you and get to learn you and they start to ask you to do other things. 
then you say, all right, well, here are the fees to do those things do and those, those fees yeah. to bring in the people to do the things that need to be done is what makes sense to me for that kind of process. But yeah, architects are, I don't know if it's really good or really bad, but they're very quick to say, I can do it or I can figure it out or trust me. And maybe that doesn't always work out great. Yeah. I mean, not on my jobs. It works out awesome. Yeah. I was going to say, it works out just fine for me every time. But for some people, yeah, it may not. Exactly. Asking for a friend, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Asking a friend. I want to ask you this question is it's so easy to talk to you. We're heading downstream super fast, but I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning to a certain part and just say, what drove you into building science? It's not one of the traditional pathways that a lot of architects discover. So it seems like there has to be some way for it to be introduced to you or as you go through the educational process, because I mean, I know where you went to school. I know that you got educated as an architect. And I can tell you that from my time in school, we barely scratched the surface of what building science actually is. So how does somebody find out or discover, this is what I really love. This is my passion. How did that work for you? So I knew what building science was anyway, because my father is an engineer and he's a building scientist as well. So I at least knew what it was. I still wanted to practice architecture. I like design. I wanted to do straight up design. And when I was in school, it was really my first real job in school that got me into the technical side of architecture and construction. And that was through my work at a firm called Chris Benedict. And it was really working for Chris in New York City that I just fell in love with this stuff. It just came alive in a different way. Chris does really, really interesting work in New York City. She builds extraordinarily energy efficient buildings. And she does it for no extra upfront construction costs. So yeah, it's easy to make efficiency gains when you throw money at something or it's easier. It can be easier. Let's, you know, slap some solar panels on this thing. But she didn't do that. So her buildings use about 85% less energy than a typical New York apartment for heat and hot water and for no extra money. So it's just by being attentive to how the building is designed and how it's built. And so when I started working for her, I realized very quickly that you can't accomplish anything extraordinary from an energy perspective without knowing building science, without really understanding how enclosures actually come together and without understanding construction. And I was an intern and she put me in the field all the time at particular stages of construction. And I hadn't done that before. I hadn't been on job sites. I had a hard hat for the first time and was watching the the magic happened, that connection between what we draw and what actually gets built. And I loved it. I loved everything about being in the field. Maybe not everything. I didn't like feeling incompetent, which is how I felt for <laughs> several years. Sure. But I really, I really enjoyed that. That was my first introduction to this. And that's where I really said, okay, this is what I want to do. And I noticed even at the beginning that there was just a huge disconnect between, I was working while in school because that's what you do at the BAC. But there was a big disconnect between the academic side of education and what I was learning on the job. I knew that this part of the profession is not really, in my opinion, it's not taught very well to architects in a way that really speaks to them. I think it's very hard for architects to actually acquire these skills in a way that is not humiliating and that actually serves them in their daily practice. I still think that's the case and I want to minimize that for people. But I knew that if I was going to do this, I was going to have to pursue it through apprenticeship and be careful about that and figure that out on my own. It wasn't like I could sign up for a class and just take the class, get the certificate, and then there we go. Now I'm good. 
did you do that job and have that apprenticeship kind of period in between BAC and when you went to go get your master's at yes. the new school? Yeah. Design? Yeah. I only did my thesis at new school. As I was preparing for today's show, I was like, okay, so she was up in Princeton, New Jersey, right? Cause that's where your undergrads from. Right. I knew the BAC was in there, but I didn't know like on the timeline where it yeah, was. Yeah. But then I knew that you went to new school of architecture and design. And I actually looked those up because I was like, could you pick two points further <laughs> apart <laughs> from one another? And it's 2,723 miles apart, which is a 40 hour drive. And I was like, <laughs> not too many schools that could be like, like the exact opposite from one another in the entire country. Not a commuter school. <laughs> nope. Yeah, you weren't commuting during then. No, you no more the bus commuting. No more riding the bus. It was good. I'm glad um kind of worked out the way it did. What's sort of funny is actually what happened after I got my master's. So I knew that this is what I wanted to do. So I could have gone back to New York City and worked for Chris, but so that was an option for me. But New York City is a tough place to live on a starting out salary. I mean, I guess it's a tough place anytime. So I was applying to a bunch of firms. I was pretty responsible about applying for jobs in that I started really early and I applied a lot of places and I got rejected everywhere. Rejection, 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 so much rejection, which is actually a lot like school. You present stuff, you've poured your heart into this, you've stayed up all night only to be told all of the reasons that you suck. It's also harder if, in fact, you do suck. And I was definitely a below average well. student. Yeah, life is harder if you're below average. And uh, that was certainly my experience. But I did have a cool portfolio. I had kind of a neat theme to it. And I really did put it together. It was, it was at least interesting. I sent it to a friend of mine. I used to babysit the kids in this family. And they knew a principal at a very highly regarded architecture firm. And they gave my portfolio to this principal and the principal said, I'd like to have her come in for an interview. And that was really helpful for me. I had just graduated. I really wanted to work at this firm. It was really highly thought of. It was a traditional architecture firm. I was just so excited. And it wasn't just like this guy had agreed to talk to me. He had my portfolio and agreed to talk to me. Oh. <laughs> so it was like, wow. it was a real thing. It was a little bit more than just a cold call. So I felt really good about it. So I drove all night. I get to the interview and, oh, and I'd found out on the way, like I was in the bathroom in a, a restaurant in Colorado and another person whose husband worked at the firm said that they were hiring. It was super weird. Anyway, I was so hopeful. And on my way, and I'm like driving through the night, and on my way, sunset in Colorado, and it's so beautiful, and I start to like cry, because it's just so beautiful, the scenery, and I'm so hopeful, I'm like at the, you know, this big transition in my life, and I want this job so badly, and I start to pray, and I, I'm old enough to know that when you want something this bad, like danger, danger. <laughs> right, yeah. So I pray, like, dear God, like, if this job is not right for me, it needs to be real clear because I will not have the strength to say no. Like I will definitely, whatever this is, whatever the pay is, like <laughs> we want you to be a troll and live in the basement and sweep the floors. Yes, sure. No problem. Like I was just so into this. Anyway, I get to the, get to the interview and the guy meets with me and he's super nice and he's taking me around and he spends like 45 minutes introducing me to all these People, it's like he's really selling me on the firm. So I'm like, this is great. 
he's approaching this like it's a real thing. And I have a really right. good chance here. And then he sits me in, in their conference room with the glass door and it's all this beautiful, beautiful office. And he's got my portfolio and he takes it out and he says, oh, some of the worst things I've ever heard in my life or the most difficult things to hear. He said that he really wanted to meet with me because clearly you're bright. So I don't understand if it's your education that has failed you or something else. Oh, and why? Mm-hmm. Why? That the quality of the work represented, it was a very clever presentation of the work, but the quality of the work represented was far below anything that they would consider hiring at their firm. He said this in words, real like English words. This wasn't implied. This was actually stated and that I should consider other career paths. Oh my God. Which is exactly what you want to hear after you've gotten a degree. Why would this person feel the need to tell us, like, that's not his job. His job is not to like bring you in from point A to point B, wherever it is, whatever effort you go through to get, I wouldn't bring someone across town I know. to tell them that kind of message. Right. So, I know that's like, I could deliver that over the phone if I felt like yeah, I had Or via email you. or something. Yeah. I yeah. wouldn't make them come all that way. Ugh. I mean, I was fully an adult at this point, but if I were the woman I am today, I would probably stand up. I have learned this is a great way of ending a conversation is just stand up. And I would have said, thank you for your time. This is obviously not a good fit. See you later. (laughs) But instead I didn't, I just sat there and took it like I did in school, like in crits, right? You take the criticism, you listen respectfully and there you go. So I just sat there and listened. And then he said, can I pray for you? Oh, I know. And I was like, uh, okay. So I prayed for the second time getting worse related to this job. And I prayed, Oh dear God, please let me not cry. Let me not cry. Let me not cry. Let me not cry. And then I successfully did not cry until I got to the parking lot and I burst into tears. Let me get out of here. And and I mean, I I was devastated, but here's where this kind of becomes more relevant is that I was applying for these jobs that I wasn't I think very well suited for, and they weren't actually in my primary area of interest. I was doing this because I thought that I had to kind of put my time in. And this guy was also really not very nice, but even at the time, I kind of knew that he was, I had the sense that he was doing me a favor. And by the way, it was odd. This was a job interview. So asking to pray for me was not appropriate by any means, but he knew, I used to teach the friends that, that our mutual connection, I taught them Sunday school. So it wasn't completely absurd. Right. Presumption that I'm a person who prays. Inappropriate, yes, but he wasn't intentionally, I don't think, trying to be a jerk for the sake of being a jerk. Anyway, like about two weeks later, I got invited to a party by a friend who I was staying with. It was like her second cousin's kid's birthday party or whatever. And at this party, I met another architect. Can't miss event. Can't can't miss miss event. Party of the year. (laughs) Party of the year. And I met a, a man at this party, and he was an architect. And he was asking me about what my interests were and this kind of stuff. And I told him about my working for Chris Benedict in New York City and how much I liked this stuff. And anyway, he was like, you idiots, you are lucky enough to know what it is that excites you about this profession. Why are you applying for these jobs that aren't in your area of interest? Go do what you want to do now. Don't wait. Go do it. It just took... It took that. And as soon as I started looking for jobs that were more suited to this intersection of design and construction, there are a lot of firms that maybe not a lot, but 
there are firms that specialize in exactly this. So I started applying to those firms and suddenly I didn't have to sort of trick them into hiring me, like by minimizing <laughs> my weaknesses and exaggerating my strengths. Suddenly it was a mutually beneficial arrangement where we were trying to find an actual good fit. And then I had a number of much better options. So that's what took me to Dallas. I started working oh, oh for a consulting firm that did exactly this, that helped identify, you know, minimize risk doing design reviews, peer reviews for other architects and construction management type services, third party owners rep type services. And I learned a lot. Well, let me ask you this. So this is a good segue because where in this timeline did you start the Building Science Fight Club Instagram account? After, much after. I think I probably started it 2016, maybe. Yeah. Okay. I started to get much better at this. Even when I took that job, it wasn't now life is easy, rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> I still felt like I did not know what I was doing at all every day. For like the first year, I felt like 70% of what I was asked to do, I did not know how to do. And that's hard. That takes like emotional perseverance to keep showing up to something that you think you, that you don't know how to do. Building science, we should just say building science is a lot harder than even as we've kind of defined it so far because I mean, to really kind of wrap your head around it relies on physics and engineering and architecture and chemistry to a certain degree. And, mm -hmm. and just construction. Yeah. yeah. There's so many moving parts to it. Work. Which is something that they don't teach you in school, in architecture school, oh, for sure. Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're not no. getting any of that. Even if they did, I felt like I wouldn't, I didn't. Wouldn't have been able to understand it. I wouldn't have been able to understand it. Yeah. It's hard. So I started getting better at this. And this is actually what led me to start this Instagram page was, my friends from architecture school who were now no longer new, they weren't juniors at the firms that they were at. They had real experience and real skills working at mostly traditional architecture firms. Sure. And they didn't know a lot about building science and construction. And so I started taking job site photos and posting it online and marking them up for friends to help them kind of understand, okay, so like this is the flashing. And just identifying stuff that I see in, in the field, because that's really how I learned was I'd walk job sites with my mentor and my boss, Fiona, and I would say, okay, tell me what you see. Like that inner narrative, say it out loud. I know what I see or what I think I see, but what do you see? Right. So I would do that, like a, a little virtual site walk on Instagram. Now I wasn't talking about everything I saw, but just narrowing right. it down right. to yeah, one yeah, or yeah. two observations and saying, this is this part, and this is the reason that this observation is relevant or important. And it ended up growing from there. Well, it's grown like crazy. I will tell you that I thought it was interesting because like in your bio, when we were talking earlier, you kind of describe it as an educational project that teaches architects about building science construction to say that it's like a project, like my mission, and this is the vehicle which I'm going to execute this mission is to bring this complicated subject in a easy to digest graphic medium to people. I haven't looked in a couple of days. I think you're like at 51,000. 51.5. I'm looking at it right now. 51.5. <laughs> and it's crazy. And this is, I want to talk about Instagram in this exact instance is that you put a lot of time and effort into it. Oh yeah. We'll put links into it. So people driving down the road, you can just go to the article later and Don't find Instagram the link. Instagram and drive. Don't Instagram and drive. So what makes it so interesting? I mean, how hard is building science fight club either? It's a genius name. That's part of the success because you describe it in a very fun kind of way. 
So there's drawings, there's details, and they're like very pointed. We're going to talk about here's one way of doing it. Here's why it failed. Here's one way of making it good. Here's one way of making it better. And they're pretty easy to understand. And they're broken down in small pieces to where I tell young people all the time, you'll learn more from following this account than you probably will or what you did learn in school because it's easy to digest. It's little nuggets. But Andrew and I, before the show, we were talking about it and we were giggling because we're like, do you think she just drives around and like stops by somebody's driveway and runs up to the house and goes, click, click, look how terrible (laughs) this is. Click. I see a teaching moment (laughs) as I'm cruising around town and I'm like, oh, that's terrible. Let's show how this works. So something kind of funny about that is I had to kind of stop. Originally, the account was small. So there weren't that many, and it was people I knew, my friends who were following it, and it was basically anonymous. So I'd take a picture of something that maybe wasn't done super well, and it wasn't personal. I don't interact with the person who did something that wasn't ideal. So I'm using that to teach completely different people, and it's not intended to, I'm very, very, I feel very strongly about not humiliating people who are being open-minded enough to learn. I don't like that instinct. I think it's so corrosive in our culture, this instinct to humiliate people who don't know stuff or for admitting any kind of weakness or vulnerability. I think it is terrible. I am, I hate it. I hate it. So I, of course, don't want to participate in that. I don't want to humiliate people who are just trying their best to, to do something. And also when you see something that's not built right, I know enough from personal experience to know that there's a lot that went into producing that outcome. And that it's not like one person was like, I'm in control of 100% of this, and this is what I want. It's a whole bunch of decision makers are influencing things along the way. And sometimes it produces stuff that isn't ideal. And it's not like I don't have control over every detail in the projects that I work on. There's all kinds of other constraints that are being kind of woven into this. And so you can't really go and hold something up and say, ha ha look how dumb this is yeah because it's not the whole story it it just happens to be the last person to touch it yes it's not a hateful moment i mean it's kind of where it stops right right? everything that compounds before that adds to it right so all the stuff i would post is from actual projects that i'm working on but they'd be zoomed in enough that you can't really identify it so my clients i mean I would ask permission from clients if I felt like it was really something potentially identifiable. But if it was zoomed in. Yeah, if it's your project, I think, okay, this is kind of what it is. Because I can tell you the reason why I find that so amusing and because I can just imagine you creeping around and go, I want to get this picture of this garage because there's not flash correctly. So that I had to stop. I had to be really careful about because. Rolling around after work. Well, but now the account is big enough where, so I did this once. I posted a photo of a project. It was a stucco job, modern house, three stories. It was here in Dallas and they didn't drain enough behind the stucco and it's going to fail. Like it really will. And I posted a photo of it and you can tell if you happen to do business in this area, Right. You'd be able to tell who the house was. And in fact, someone did. And the developer messaged me and told me to take it down. And I did not. I remember that post. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember the house, but I remember the post. Yeah. And it. Yeah. I really struggled with that because I really don't like to embarrass people. The goal wasn't, certainly was not to humiliate or belittle, but I stand by my technical judgment. And this is a serious problem. It was a serious issue. And I'm careful or I'm much more careful now about making it so that it's less identifiable. Yeah. The goal isn't to shame a particular person. 
But part of what I do is help people deal with risk. And I can't teach if I can't be honest about my professional opinion. Anyways, I did become a lot more careful about that. Well, the the thing I thought was really funny about it was that there were a couple articles that I wrote in the early days and they were called like architecture 101. I was like, let's just talk about something really simple. And one of the first ones I did was material transition. And it was the idea, don't change materials at an outside corner. Like don't have stucco on this face. And then you have stone, right? I mean, like turn the stucco a little bit, do a transition detail. And and I was like, well, I don't have any of my projects where I did what I'm trying to teach people they shouldn't do. So I went out into my neighborhood and I was like, man, I need to like be careful how I do this because I don't want to get busted. And I remember doing one on shutters, architectural shutters. And I called them like S-H-U-D-D-E-R-S because that's how bad they were. And they made you <laughs> shutter. And I actually drove down Beverly was the road that I drove down because there were like lots of examples of how to do it correctly, even though almost to a one, they're all upside down, right? Like here in Dallas, we don't have the kind of storms where people are like, opening the window and closing the shutters. Because if they did, all the shutters would push the rain into the window. <laughs> into the house. Right? They're yeah. all installed <laughs> backwards. But then I have all these examples of like, just they're really bad and terrible. The whole time I'm thinking, I'm gonna get caught. So turn, I'm like, I'm driving the down the yeah. road and I literally would like slink down and, and try to and zoom in as far as I could so that I could be like two houses away when I took the picture. Because I got burned once. I wrote a post thinking, and this was in the very early days. For all I know, this person might listen to the podcast, so I don't want to get too much into it. But he kept saying this one word over and over again. He kept saying the word classy. And he was a super nice guy, and I liked him a lot. But I was thinking, you know, as soon as you call something classy, it's no longer classy. That word just kind of like a thing that is classy should not be called classy was kind of my premise on this. so true. And so I had this other moment where he called me up at the day after I wrote this post. He goes, that post is about me, right? Because I said classy a lot. And I was like, oh my God, this is yeah. I mean, I was like, how in the heck would this guy ever have found my website? Because it was in the early days. And I told him, I said, because this was true. And I said, I don't know, it wasn't about you. I mean, it's what made me think about it. But it was at our office company Christmas party. We had a guy who had too much to drink and he was creeping around in the bushes outside. And he was doing that where you put your lips on the glass and puff your cheeks open. No, real oh, yeah, nice yeah. yeah. And his girlfriend who was on the other side of the house could see him and she yells, Tom, show some class. And I was like, but not like what you just did. Right? Cause you don't scream, show some class as an example of class of being classy. Yeah. Yes. And so the whole thing, I just was like, I was so amused by it. So that's why I wrote about it. But I was like, you don't know who's going to read it. And I was like, I can't have somebody. And they find it. They go, you used my house as an example of a terrible material transition. You hurt my feelings. That was a horror show to think that that could possibly happen to me. Yeah, it's tough, but it's also building is, and design, what we do is, it's public. It is inherently public. Yeah. And it sucks because we don't like to tell people things that they don't want to hear. I don't like doing that either. I want people to be happy and pleased. But it'd be the difference between you're sitting at a table and you want to tell whoever you're with, you've got some spinach in your teeth. You're not just going to go, hey, hey, everybody, everybody, hold up, hold up, hold up. Hey, Bill, you've got spinach. You're going to be discreet and just kind of like, you know, hey, you want a little little thing (laughs) like that? Fair enough. I think about what we're doing is like putting spotlights on it and going flashing lights. Look at this. 
but it's not done hatefully, which I think is the escape hatch that people like us have. We're not presenting it as a hateful moment or to make fun of you or to say, you did this wrong because you're stupid, but to say, let's look at how we can improve upon this. How can we make it better? What are the considerations that should be in place for everyone who's doing this thing moving forward. Yeah, That's I think also there's sort different. of an unwritten contract that we have with the receiver of that information. So you as the author or producer of whatever the criticism is, are sharing your opinion with the expectation that the person listening is going to do so in a respectful way as well. And they have to be able to receive this in the spirit of education, not in the spirit of personal affrontery or or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. We can't teach or we can't learn if we can't be honest about this kind of stuff. And it hurts to be on the receiving end. Like that is hard. But do you want to know if you have spinach in your teeth or not? I do. (laughs) I mean, I do. I want to know, right? So, and I think that's sort of the difference between, I have a lot of, maybe not a lot of, but I certainly have some anxiety with what I post publicly on Instagram or anything, if, you know, with what I'm teaching. But I'd rather have someone criticize me and tell me where I'm wrong than nobody tell me I'm wrong and have me sure. publicly advocating something that isn't, that isn't right or isn't helpful. I mean, I don't like it either, but the alternative is worse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I think it's the idea of even what you talked about earlier in your experience, the two architects, the one in the interview and the one at the party sort of told you the same information. But they gave it to you in a different way, right? One was very beneficial to you to have you look at it from a different perspective. And the other was more just scolding you, telling you that you were wrong. So, I mean, I think it's all about how it gets presented as much as it is about how you take it. But yeah. (laughs) That I was wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In such a shocking way that he was just so shocked that someone could be, could could lack talent so so aggressively. (laughs) You're not still carrying that around with you, are you? (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. It's funny. I was thinking, because I was thinking about this, you had mentioned in the preparation to this podcast that partially you wanted to know how I got into this. So that of course came to mind because it was, it was something that really set me on a, a different path. And I do think of it, I think of it now and kind of, I laugh a little bit, but I also, it makes me very sympathetic to, to young people in this profession who are starting out and who have to make difficult decisions and hear difficult things. And they don't know how it's going to work out. Like now it's great. This led to a terrific and enriching career, but I didn't know that would happen then. Yeah. I was just desperate for a job. Let me ask you this. I have one more thing I want to ask you before we get to my favorite part of every episode, which is the hypothetical, which I always think Mm -hmm. is fun. But I want to talk about building to a higher standard and not spend like a colossal amount of time on it. But it's one of those things about like at the very heart of what it is that you do and the role that you play, somebody has to have interest in building to a higher standard. And while it doesn't always cost money, there is some expense associated with it. Even at its barest level, it's getting the right people in place to give you that risk management advice, you know, that says, here's what we're talking about and how you can leverage money versus how you build something. So how do you go about convincing people the value building to a better standard? Is that something you have to deal with a lot? So kind of. So what I try not to do is, I don't mean to criticize how you've asked the question, but Oh no, do, do. Bring it on. I try not to position (laughs) it as building, building better or worse that there's a right way of doing it. And then there's the way that you might do it (laughs) badly. 
and but for my participation, you're going to do it wrong. It's more, how can we make sure that the decisions that you make about what might be your most cherished or and expensive personal asset, your single people's houses, a lot of times that's their single biggest investment. This is a big thing. It's also the thing that houses the people that they love most in the world. So this is an important thing. So how do we make the decisions, the design and construction decisions reflect what you value most? So how do we make the best of the resources that you have available? And most of the time, if I'm doing my job, like I'll save you money. I'll save a client money by identifying things that they don't need to do. I help them allocate their resources more efficiently, not less efficiently. So it's not like, what is this going to cost? It's how do I make sure that I'm allocating the resources I have properly? What have I got? And how do I make what I want to happen happen? I don't like it when the setup is that owner feels like they're negotiating against their architect or their builder. I think that that ends up being a recipe for disaster, really, in that people, they have so much anxiety about negotiation and being a bad negotiator and trying not to get tricked by their contractor that like they're setting themselves up for a bad situation anyway. So if somebody's going to nickel and dime me over my design fee, which is so small, like my fee could be $10,000 to help design or to do the design review or peer review of a, you know, a 17,000 square foot home. Right. And okay, so $10,000 is a lot of money, but what is it as a percentage of the decisions that I'm influencing? Right. Like, what's your roof going to cost you? And what's the difference between option A in your roof and option B in your roof? Probably, you know, a lot of instances, it's more than my entire fee, like option A and option B. So you could nickel and dime me and get me to agree to a 30% savings, but like, is it really going to advance your interest that much? So here's why I was asking, and this is why I will still respectfully disagree that I think the way I asked it was exactly how I meant it. Okay. It was that you could be hired by the architect, you could be hired by the owner, or you could be hired by the contractor, right? So it's any one of these. And the skill set and the asset that people who do what you do for a living bring to the mix is looking at maybe the ways that we, and not necessarily Bob, but architects or contractors, have fallen into kind of this rote process. It's kind of like doctors doing bloodletting with leeches. Like at a certain point, there's better ways to do things than how they may have done them in the past. And as building science evolves and there's more knowledge and there's more technology and there's more science that actually goes into it, there's this moment where the learning curve for the people executing in the field may not be as current or as relevant as the building products that exist now and the science that tells us how we should be doing things today versus how we did them even a year ago, right? Yeah. So when I say building to a higher standard, it's the idea that you continue to grow, you continue to evolve. And I would think that there will be moments when you have to actually explain why doing it this way is superior, even if it's not a cost-driven yes. decision. Okay. This, yes. this is a yeah. better way of doing this than maybe how you've done it in the past, or this is good, this is better. Because that's, a lot of your Instagram, they talk about like, hey, here's a way you can do it. This is good. This isn't necessarily a bad way to do it, but here's an even better way. And those are the assets that I take the most from because I think my skill level, and I'm kind of talking about myself here, is that I feel like I'm pretty good at that. Like I understand how to detail wall yeah. assemblies and that kind of stuff. But there's that one little, like that did my yeah. knowledge freeze in time at a certain point, whereas 
your value is this is what you do every day, all day. So I would expect you to be better at it than me. And I would count on you to say, here's a better way to do this. And part of that comes from people have to be receptive to saying, maybe I don't know how to do it the best way possible. And so when they're talking to you, if they're not the one that brought you on board, you're having to tell other people why the way they did in the past may not be as superior to the way this new way works. Well, yeah, fair enough. And there's also, from my perspective, I have to have a tremendous amount of flexibility in my recommendations to accommodate not just the architect, but also the contractor and the other resources that are available in that market, whatever it is. So for example, maybe we can achieve what we want to achieve with insulated concrete forms, but nobody really does that in Dallas. So I'm not going to tell you to switch to something that might help you achieve your performance goals better, the owner's performance goals better, but is going to be hard to get competitive bids on that people aren't familiar with or there's a whole lot of other problems exactly and so we're going to want to navigate that really well but yeah that's exactly right it's how can i help how can i take what somebody's already done even if it's done very competently and say okay here's what i think you're trying to achieve with this are you aware that there's this and this other way of achieving similar results but it might be much easier to build. It might be less costly. It might be easier to inspect. Yeah. And what's the sort of next step? Like if you wanted to take one more step in the durability direction, what would that step be? And maybe you take it, maybe you don't. But I really keep in mind what people are starting with as well, because if I can change the minimum amount in somebody's existing process, there's real value in that. So How can I get more performance out of getting them to change the least amount of stuff? Yeah. Like if they've already settled on this, they like to do it this particular way. They like, they like using a mechanically attached membrane. That's what they like to use. They don't want to switch to something else. Okay. So how can I take that thing that is important to them? And what's the next step within that constraint? And I love that. I mean, I, that gets me all jazzed up. That's a design challenge in itself, right? right? I mean, Bob and I talk about that all the time, about how every aspect of project is really about design. And even the way you're describing things is about design. Just it's on a much more specific and intense level. I think the other thing that interests me about your posts when I see it is, I mean, I know Bob was saying you kind of do this good, better, best thing. But I also think a lot of it sometimes is is geared toward even just installation operations or mm-hmm. order of operations. If you'd have done put this piece on first and then put that piece on, then And that's really not about changing exactly the materials and things that they're using, but the order of operations that they're putting things in. And that makes a lot of difference. Exactly. So that this trade doesn't have to mobilize twice. So you're more likely to get, to get what you actually want by drawing it this way instead of this other way. And, and how do we account for stuff? Like architects a lot of times don't know that like there are decisions that are made later. And so they don't know at the beginning when they're detailing something, you know, they don't know the profile mm-hmm. of the window that's actually going to be used because that's going to be bought later. So how can you give yourself the maximum amount of flexibility now in the drawing when you know that a really big portion of this is likely going to change later? So how do you account for that in a way that minimizes change orders and minimizes rework for you? Yeah. And that last one annoy your yeah. clients. Yeah, that one's really key, especially when it comes to windows and especially on residential projects because I would say the number of times that I chose a window and it didn't get changed was very, very low percentage. I know. And I go, 
why is it always so hard? Because they'll say, well, right now I can get this window for this percentage less. And you're like, oh, that one doesn't have a nailing fin. And I got one by fours to put, oh my God. And so then we're stuck with, well, do we go to the time to redraw like, you know, and I worked on nice houses. I go, am I going to redraw like 40? Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of go, whatever money you thought you were going to save, you are going to lose because you're going to have to pay me to redraw this because it wasn't my call to change the window type. So there's, there's this diminishing returns. It's funny to me that you think that happens a lot in residential. I was going to say to me that happens oh, so much all the time and too. Yeah. in my public yeah. work, oh, though, yeah. actually, because in that, my public work always has to have open mm-hmm. specifications. So there's 20 products that a contractor can choose from that'll meet the specification that'll go in there that for every part of the yeah. building. And so you have no idea what they're going to pick. And again, have to try to do your best as we pick something and we work with it and that's what we use as our basis, but that doesn't mean that that's what's going to end up on the job at all. Exactly. Where I see this a lot too is in this particular time where we are, where there's an increased focus on energy efficiency and increasingly codes are changing to require continuous exterior insulation. And (laughs) what's crazy about that, I mean, it's a good thing and it's, it's really not all that expensive, No, but it requires doing things quite a bit differently. Now you've got this buildup of material that you have to find a way to cover at window returns and all kinds of other stuff. So sometimes I advise people to use products like Zip R, where it qualifies as exterior insulation and it is in fact continuous over the structure, but the drainage, the water control layer is on the outside of the insulation. Yeah, it's outboard. Exactly, so what it means is all your details are the same. I mean, they're a little different, move them out a little bit, but like your cladding returns, your furring strips, your water management, everything is the same. So there's value sometimes in you're limited. When you pick a product like this, it limits you in some other ways, but maybe that trade-off is worth it because you don't have to redraw everything in the same way. You don't have to retrain a contractor. I'm seeing this a lot, particularly right now, because people are having growing pains at specifically this. Like they didn't have to do this before and now they have yeah. to do it. You saw my face. You know, same thing with roofing. Like there's all kinds of decisions that are available to us now in custom homes in say Dallas, Houston, Atlanta that are appropriate for cold climates. But try getting a roofer to install insulation on the top side of, of a residential roof deck. Yeah. Not going to happen in a yeah. warm climate. Will yeah. it later? <laughs> like, yeah, okay. But that means that our options are different in Boston because of what the labor market looks like than they are in San Antonio. Yeah. I was going to say with that continuous insulation, the thorn in my side is that wall to roof or wall to soffit mm-hmm. to roof transition. I know. Oh, it's a bear. Oh, that drives me nuts. And it's so hard to really try to figure that in, in an order of operations oh, sort of mode, right? I'm mean, not going to draw it and be, oh, it's going to work, but really it won't work because that's not really how things get put together. And that's, that is sort of the bane of my existence for all of that. Cause I agree, it should happen. Those couple of transitions right there that are so difficult to master, depending upon the project. I really try to help with specifically that when I'm teaching, because that I think got me understanding the, the order of operations, the order of installation, sequencing, and the division of labor among the trades is probably what got me to being pretty good at my job to being really good at it that and I try to make it less painful for someone else to learn it yeah I encourage architects to try to draw their details in the way that it's going to be constructed yeah Yeah. it's good advice first 
this is going to be there. Then the next trade comes and then they do, what does it look like? Yeah. What do they see? So it ends up being kind of like a, a virtual mock-up, really. A mock-up that's drawn, not constructed. I mean, you yeah. don't also have a mock-up. But yeah. it's, um... And that's one of the things I try to do. I like this building science stuff and I'm not, maybe not as big a nerd about it as you are, but <laughs> I could be, and I could fall into that vein, I think. But always when I teach new people in my office, I talk about, you know, they'll draw something up and they would be like, here you go. And I'm like, well, but the person that's installing this isn't going to come till four months after this piece that's going to be installed here. And it's not going to work. So we got to rethink it. I always get frustrated though, when the contractor does things in the order that I didn't expect them to be done or the way that's typically done, because they've got one sub that's doing two or three trades. And so they're trying to do it all at once. And it's like, no, that's not, it's not the order it's supposed to be in. Yeah, it's, um, it's funny. There are different ways of doing that, right? So it's a challenge to anticipate on the front end yeah. what that's going to look like. You want to draw it in a way that makes it as easy as possible to install, not just because you like the contractor and want to do him a favor. Partially, I hope that's the case. The easier and more intuitive you make the detail, the less likely it is that it's going to be screwed up, really. I was going to try to find a more eloquent way of saying that. But really, <laughs> it worked. We really, it's time. I can't wait any longer. Uh, we got to get, we got okay, to get to the, the hypothetical. hypothetical is good. Go, go to town. Okay. All right. So, so here it is. Like we ask everybody when we have guests and we say, do you want to do it? Or you can opt out, you know, cause some people are pretty serious about themselves and you know, they want to have a good time. Christy said, I'm in. I'm in. Like, she was like, let's do it. This is actually what, is this number three or number I four? I think this Andrew? is number three. It's, it's scary. Three in a row that Andrew has put together. Because for a while, he's like, I never choose his because his are, do you want your son to die or do you want your father to die? And you're like, well, why are we talking about this? These are terrible. So today's hypothetical is you find a book that you begin to read only to discover that it is the story of your life. You read until you get to the point that is this moment in time. So the question is, do you continue to read knowing that you will not be able to change the events to come? And since you're our guest, you get to answer first. Okay. Yeah, as a guest, you get to go first. Yeah, that lets us tell you that you're wrong. That's why we do it. This so time. the first thing I have to do is question the premise to begin with, because I have to, because that's how my mind works, but I'm <laughs> taking it seriously. And that is that I don't think it's possible to this has been examined at great length and like movies like back to the future and stuff, but can you know the past without actually having an influence and in changing it? Um, and I don't think that really can happen. I think your knowing would change it. It just absolutely would anyway, but let's put that to the side. For yes. A minute. The butterfly theory, the chaos theory. Yes. Yeah. We're I mean, quantum that. physics, Schrodinger's cats, like right. exactly. Suspend but, all that. Um, In our magic world, that doesn't happen. That. This is, yeah. yep. So if I were to know the future, my own future, it would in some ways alleviate. So I think, no, that I shouldn't do it. <laughs> that doesn't mean I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't stop reading. I don't think I should. But my caveat to that is that if I look in the past and say, okay, had this option been available to me when I was 20, would it have benefited me to know certain things about my life now? And the answer is undoubtedly yes. But it would have benefited me because I could have changed something. So for example, had I known that I would be this happily married now, it absolutely would have changed my attitude towards dating in some very beneficial ways. <laughs> had, I, had I known that I would be happy and fulfilled in my career, 
would it have alleviated a whole bunch of anxiety and heartache previously? Yes, also. I don't know. So I guess, but that presumes that I'm able to, okay, okay. in let, some ways, change it. Okay, let me but do if this. I can't change it. No, no, no. All right, all right. Should... Time out, time out. So let's, so we change the rules on this all the time because everybody looks for loopholes and they always say, like, aha, I'm going to game the question. So I'm going to change it slightly. Do you remember those books okay. growing up where you would read a page and it would say, do you go up the trail or do you return to camp? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so you get to choose the answer. So what if this book is kind of written like that? So it constantly rewrites based on any future behavior you take. So if you get to today and you go, what am I going to do tomorrow? And it tells you and you do it or not do it. The book continues to rewrite, but it won't ever rewrite itself until you've done whatever action it is that caused the change. Right? So you can't just like, just like back to the future. That's a completely different question. No, no. So you can't, <laughs> no, it's, it's still got the timeline to it because Chrissy's got a fair point. If I read it, if I just read it and it says, oh, you walk down the street, you hit by a bus. Guess who's not walking down the street, getting hit by that bus. I mean, how do I not do that? So it requires a suspension of, of reality to such a degree that I think that if you did do the do you go up to the cave or do you return to camp aspect to it? Like you could say, I go on the date, but it won't write the future until you actually go on the date. Yeah. My answer would be, I would not go on a lot of them, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. Sort of like being a teenager and I am of the opinion now that had I gone to bed at midnight, pretty much like had I left the part, whatever party or event at midnight, I think my life probably would have been better, not worse. But I don't know. Maybe I'd be less fun. I don't know. Nothing uh, good ever no, happens I, after 2 a.m., right? Is that the story? Exactly. Exactly. I don't believe that, but yeah, that's a thing, right? <laughs> well, but cost benefit, if I'm really looking, I mean, there are some times, don't get me wrong, it was fun to stay out, but there were also some things that I regret. So I don't know. Don't listen to Andrew because he sleeps until like two in the afternoon. So his two in the morning is like your eight o'clock at night. Hey, hey, hey. Not the same. It's not the same. No, it's not. My 2 a.m. is good. Yeah. His is <laughs> different. Okay. So so my answer is no. I, I probably would read it because I'm curious. I probably wouldn't have the discipline not to do it. But I think probably you're better off. Not. I think there's a not knowing. And I think that there's a maybe some moral benefit to having faith in your behavior in the present. So in making good decisions, wherever you happen to be based on the information that you have. And I think there's some value in that. So that's, so no, I mean, <laughs> but would I do it? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Should I do it? No. <laughs> yeah. We fell along very similar paths. Since this is your question, Andrew, you go last. Right? Oh, okay. So All right then. So I'm supposed to be the one to get to say you're wrong then if it's my no, question. You get, say I'm wrong. Say I'm no, wrong. You get to no. say wrong to everybody. The thing is, is when you ask the question, you go last, right? So okay. This is Andrew's gotcha. question. So he goes last. So I wouldn't read it, but to ensure that I would destroy it. Cause I, I know, oh. I know that I couldn't, I, I'd like to think that I have that level of discipline, but I know for absolute certainty that I do not. If I had a book that's going to tell me, What's going to happen to my wife? What's going to happen to my daughter? Like, could I protect them in some way? If I had some knowledge about future events, like, of course, I'm going to access that information. But that's why I think that the switch to the go to the cave or go back to camp is interesting because I won't know that, like, let's say my daughter, she just started driving. She gets in a car accident and she badly breaks a leg. And I go, well, I don't want that to happen. And I know it's going to happen. So I do something that takes action that keeps that from happening. But maybe as a result of her breaking a leg, 
she meets the love of her life because he's a therapist that she meets during her physical training, right? And I go, I wouldn't know that. And I, I ruined something. You can't possibly know that. So in my mind, I don't read it and I destroy it. Absolutely, that's what I do. So I talked to my husband about it and his perspective was kind of interesting. He mentioned that the philosopher Marcus Aurelius of Silence of the Lambs fame, obviously. No, also other stuff, I was like, but anyway. <laughs> he kind of predates that a little bit, but okay. Yeah, he does, but I can't, I always think of like first principles, Clary. Yeah. But Marcus Aurelius essentially, I think, posited a thought experiment where he said, okay, you're told that you are going to either die tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. And he reasoned from this that only the most craven person would beg for the day after tomorrow over tomorrow in that you get your affairs in order, you say your goodbyes and that's it. And that really the, the day after tomorrow begging is really not productive. And then he concludes from that, that Marcus Aurelius says, that's really the situation that humans are in anyway. And that we're really, we're begging for the day after tomorrow or making the best use of the time we've got. So I don't know, from that I get, no, don't read the book. Yeah, I think, okay, Andrew, so you've got two no's. Well, and I'm going to be, I'm even, I think, a little more of an existentialist on this is that it's a no, and I'm not even tempted to. Oh, interesting. I don't really. That's a hard no. Yeah, I don't really care. And maybe that's because in my mind, it's the things that you guys are talking about, how if I read the book, it would change what was happening. Or even if the sense of in this magical world, I couldn't change anything, right? If it was all just fated to be that way, and there was no way I could change it. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's not something I would want to know. I think like, even if you accept that you don't change the physical outcome, not going through the same process of uncertainty does maybe moral damage to your soul. Like, I think that's my fear. Well, I think for your example, you said if you would have known in your twenties that you would have had this fulfilling career, if you could have read that. But mm. I mean, in my mind, had you read that, you'd have been like, oh, cool. Now I don't have to work so hard. I don't have to try so hard. I don't right. have to do these things. Yeah. The, now we're talking predetermination. Yeah. Right. That, the idea that we're. Yeah. And that's why yeah. I'm, that's why I would just be like, no, nah, I'm good. I don't need to read it because what's going to happen is going to be from the well, decisions so that I make. Though. And, you know, I want to make those in the moment. So that's interesting because you identified it like a way that it could be negative and that Bob did too, where maybe you alter things because you know, you end up being tempted to alter things in a bad way. But in some ways, I really think there are situations where, I mean, for our situations in our hypothetical imaginary Hey, world, that's what this is all about. That's what this is right. all about. It's totally legit. Like it presumes that that uncertainty in the present leads to bad outcomes in the future when sometimes leads to good outcomes, like hard work, a work ethic. Yeah. So I don't know what my future is going to be. Therefore, I'm going to work harder to make it be good. But what if it's a negative thing? I'm afraid of the future. And so it cripples me with fear when if I knew it would work out okay, I'd be more bold and a good thing would happen. But you could be more bold and a bad thing would happen because of that as opposed to no. this fear is your motivator. That's why I was saying that predetermination gets in it because, which yeah. I have a huge problem with because that's a moral escape clause, right? Yeah. The idea that the future is going to happen regardless of your behavior for some people is like the, well, it doesn't matter what I do because it's not going to change the future. So why would I take the harder path? Why would I do the thing that's more difficult? Why would I do the thing that challenges me outside of, you know, like 
to reveal to yourself that you are. It doesn't matter. That's going to get revealed to me anyway, because yeah. it's already been determined. <laughs> That's a big part of, for me, why I go, I don't read it, but also because of the ramifications that could evolve by me knowing it, the idea of that I can't change it makes my head explode. I know. To me, when you were talking about your example, what I was thinking is that you read that your, you know, your daughter was in a car accident and she broke her leg and you try everything to avoid that happening. And then, you know, it could have been that she met the love of her life doing that. But my thought in that whole process was, I'm assuming if this is the story of your life and it said she was in a really bad car accident and, you know, she, <laughs> you keep reading. Well, no, yeah. no, but that she barely, barely survives, but then she does and everything's okay. And during that process, she falls in love with the doctor at the hospital and she has this really fulfilling life. It's the story of my life. It's not the story of her life. I don't know that information. It's going to be in there some. It has to be. Your kids are part <laughs> of your life. Says who? According to this, it's the story of my life. Yeah, but your life It's not going to say how my, my daughter met her husband. It might just say, oh, you went to your daughter's wedding and this was an amazing event. Doesn't necessarily say, and she married Ted you know, the love of her life as a result. Of I don't know about that. I would assume it would sell you that stuff because that's uh, specifics of your life. Yeah, I'm with Andrew on this one. It would be included see? for sure. Boom. And so if that's the case, would you no siding with Would Andrew. you allow that to happen? <laughs> well, he's clearly like, accurate in this hypothetical imaginary world that he has created himself. We've run out of time today for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> See, but would you allow something like that to happen? If you knew that something bad had to happen in order for something good to happen afterwards, if you were reading the future, again, that's one of those things where I don't even want to know that the bad stuff is going to happen, that there would be good stuff coming after because it would be hard for me not to try to change the idea of the bad stuff happening but just because I don't want that to happen so I wonder, right, at all. Well, so I don't want just, but I don't I'm want that to happen to you, Andrew, either. And I go, how big is this book? Is this going to tell me the little <laughs> fingers that go to every person I ever know and I meet in my life? No, I would just assume your family, you, your wife, your kids, Chrissy and her husband and what's, me and my kids. And up to the point that they're at my bedside and I'm dead or, you know, whatever, I step out in front of the bus and get smashed and they have to watch it. Well, I don't know, whatever, but that's what it goes to. I wonder if, if partially, so we've all said no. And I wonder if, Part of that is, because it seems like we've said no in part because we don't want the responsibility or we can't trust ourselves with the responsibility of what yes would be. I wonder what that says about our personality types and what personality types say yes, because they are, they want to take on that responsibility, that control. I mean, I say responsibility, someone else might say control. Yeah, but I- Being this- But if it doesn't- being. Yeah, but I'm not sure that yes or no matters either way. It's just uh, when you wake up in the day, you know what happens because your behavior is not going to change if you said yes or if you said no because everything's already been determined. Like you can't rewrite the future. So you saying yes. I guess yes, it wouldn't matter. It'd be like watching a movie more than once. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. So if you it. have an interesting life, you, it sound, it's good to watch it more than once. But if you're nice See, and I would because I do, <laughs> I do watch movies more than once. And my wife will make fun of me because I'll even watch bad movies more than once. No, me too. Especially bad movies. Yeah, those are actually better, right? I mean, sometimes. <laughs> those are the best. <laughs> they get better, yeah. So along this theme, I think there's a new, it's coming out, I think, like this year, a new Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, yeah. It probably deals with all of this much better than we <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm winking while I say this. 
Of course it will. Yeah, I don't think so. Of course it will. I think it actually comes no, out next week. I mean, actually, I think it really will. I mean, the earlier Bill and Ted's were excellent. Righteous. <laughs> I'm asking you right now, follow up on me. When that movie comes out, I want you. Oh, we're definitely watching it a, in no, the Williamson it's house. Next in week. The th- you're going to watch it. We should have like a live stream. Yeah, we should have a watch party. A watch That's party. right. Yeah. <laughs> like Mystery Science Absolutely. 3000. Yeah. Absolutely. That's ridiculous. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and call that a wrap. So I think it was an interesting conversation for me. I hope it was an interesting conversation for everybody else. Indeed it was. We should definitely do this in person with cocktails. Just yeah, just to have a chat. We don't even have to record it. Yeah, we don't have to record it. That's yeah. incidental. Yep. Thanks for joining All us. Right. Thank you so much. This really was a lot of fun. I think we should do it again. Bye. All right. Take care. Thank you for being with us today for episode 58, Talking Shop with Building Science Fight Club and Christine Williamson. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get freshly minted new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star, that's not how I detailed it rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Be sure to stick around until the very end because if there are any bloopers, that's where you'll find them. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. I'm worried about what I would do if I've had a couple cocktails and I'm recording myself. Yeah, that sounds bad. Because I don't, I don't have much of a filter as it is. Uh, ask we Andrew. can edit it. I guess I have a, I actually have a really good filter because there are things that like Andrew has seen Bob unedited, <laughs> and and other people are like, they're like they don't know that Bob, and Andrew gets tired sometimes. He's like, you don't know. Yeah, I get in tr- I actually get in trouble for knowing that Bob because other people get mad at me about it. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm like, so. eh, he no, and they're like, you don't know. You're such a jerk. Why are you being so mean to Bob? <laughs> <laughs> so my options are just shoot the sleeping guy. And, yeah. man, you. <laughs> I'm so prone to going down rabbit holes. Rabbit like holes. I'll start telling a story, and it'll remind me of this other story, and I'll start telling that story. Next thing you know, I'm like ankle deep in twelve stories. <laughs> None yeah. of which I finished. Right? And then, yeah, and then seven stories deep, he's like, I don't even remember. What was the point? I was like, what, what were we talking about? We yeah. Yes. I do that a lot. So I do it too. So, so it I, could be crazy. This ought I mean, to be we fun. We could be then. like yeah. this marathon <laughs> session. We're, we could be on the phone tomorrow. I mean, I don't know.